What's up, everyone? Welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. For those of you that are new here, thank you for joining. I am your host, Ethan Bridge. Before I dive into the intro, I'd greatly appreciate if you pulled out your phone, opened up the podcast app and left a five star rating and review. It literally takes a matter of seconds and you don't even have to stop listening. On today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking to Stacey Keogh. Stacey is the founder of Brand Collective Communications, a digital marketing agency whose mission is to build brands and create digital marketing services that clients rave about, customers obsess over, brands can't live without, employees are proud of, and investors seek for long-term returns. They work relentlessly to give brands the most compelling, creative, and savvy marketing campaigns possible. Stacey has proven herself as a top entrepreneur, earning herself as a spot as a finalist in the 2016 FSB London Business Awards as Entrepreneur of the Year and was shortlisted in 2018 Southwark Business Excellence Awards, SME Excellence Award and Entrepreneur of the Year once again. The Game Changer is a six step strategy that generates a steady flow of leads by following Stacey's six C's of marketing. Connect, create, captivate, capture, converse, and convert. All of which we discuss in today's episode, along with tips on how to avoid common marketing mistakes and how to build a brand online. I can't wait for you all to listen to what Stacey has to say, so without any further ado, let's dive straight into today's episode. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the CEO Journals podcast. Today on the show, I have the pleasure in speaking to Stacey Keogh. Stacey, how are you doing today? Hi, I'm really well. Thank you, Ethan. Thanks so much for having me here today. The pleasure is all mine. I can't thank you enough for joining me on this episode. But for the listeners who don't know who you are, do you want to just give us a quick 60 second introduction of who you are and what you do, please? Yeah, sure. So I am Stacey. I'm the founder of Brand Collective Communications, which is a London-based digital marketing agency. And we work with small to medium-sized businesses by helping them to build their brands online. So that could be everything from web development and SEO, right through to content and social, pay-per-click advertising, really building entire digital marketing pipelines to help businesses grow their online customer base and their visibility of their brand. Awesome. Very well summed up. And you're actually one of the, you're actually the first guest that I've had from, that actually has called me from England. Everyone else has been from America and I'm just from, just I'm outside London myself, just outside London in Kent. So it's nice to have someone close to home on the call. Yeah, absolutely. That's interesting that all of your guests have been international. I will say, I mean, originally I'm actually from New Zealand, so you will notice that I do have a little bit of an accent, but I've been in London for 14 years, so it's starting to mellow out a little bit. What made you want to come from New Zealand to London? What, like, what made you <laughs> want to come to this rainy, depressing country where the weather's awful yeah. and New Zealand? What, why did that happen? Yeah, this week has been a challenge, actually. Um, well, I think it's the usual. I was traveling. So as most people do after they finish their studies or have done a little bit of work, um, here you would call it a gap year. In New Zealand, we call it an OE, an overseas experience. And it's an expectation, really. So people are expected to go traveling, experience living abroad, working abroad. Um, 
So usually people do it for two years. That's pretty standard for New Zealanders. Uh, so yeah, I, I sort of traveled for about seven months across um, South America and Western Europe and then settled here in London. And I'm really fortunate that my dad is actually um, British. So I also have dual citizenship, which is a blessing and a curse in the sense that it's given me no pressure or timeline to kind of work to. So even though I had the intention of only being here for two years, 14 years later, I am still here. Well, we're happy to have you. <laughs> so the way, <laughs> Thank I, you. the way I like to start all my episodes is to throw it back with my guests to their time at school and their childhood. So if you don't mind me asking, mm. I'd love to learn a little bit about your upbringing. So let's focus on a 14, 15-year-old Stacey. How were you in school? Were you the class clown or were you the super smart student that didn't really have to put much effort in and was just straight A's all the way through? Oh my goodness, that's actually really challenging <laughs> time to think about. 14, 15. Um, I was, I'm not an academic person um, at all. I always enjoyed school, so I liked going to school, um, mostly for the social aspects. So I liked spending time with my friends. Um, I, I lived in like a really nice community. I went to uh, a private Catholic girls' school and just had a really nice, group of friends but academically I was quite awful um <laughs> I definitely was a little bit of a class clown not, not that I'm very funny at all but just a little disruptive I suppose um so yeah I didn't really do very well at school um didn't show up to my final exams or anything like that so yeah it wasn't my best the best time of life <laughs> definitely something that I struggled with at the time and you know looking back as you're older it's always I suppose we all do it where we say we probably should have tried it a little bit harder. I should have put in more effort, but I just didn't have the discipline. Um, I don't, it just didn't, it didn't fit well for me, school. Uh, I don't know if it was like the exams and uh, studying books or, or what it was, but it just, it wasn't a good fit. Didn't feel good. That's fair enough. It's not for everyone. So did you go into further education then? So like here in England, of course, we call it university. Did you, did you end up yeah. going to university? No, no, I wouldn't, I would never have had the grace to get to university. Um, so no, so what I did after school, I stayed all the way through school. We go to year 13. So I stayed all the way through again. I, I sort of enjoyed it. I you know, had a great group of friends, liked going to attending school. I was never somebody to um, not attend classes or wag a day at school. I never did any of that. So I was a little bit of a goody goody in that sense. I just wasn't great at applying myself academically. So um, after school, I, what did I do? I actually went and did a one year course. So, um, a diploma in business and tourism. And I was really keen on actually working in the travel industry. It was something that always, uh, you know, I was really interested in traveling. Um, and I loved dealing with people. And I think the, yeah, the business and tourism side really sort of caught my attention. So I decided to go and do a one year diploma, um, which I did. And I liked that and I did actually apply myself there. Um, and I kind of left with yeah, diploma in business and tourism and ended up being in the top um, 5% of graduates from that course. And what that meant was that I was featured in a magazine, a tourism magazine, the top 10 students. And that magazine was distributed to all of the travel and tourism businesses throughout New Zealand. Um, and actually up the back of that, I got my first job. So 
Um, I was pretty lucky that that kind of worked out well for me, but it's definitely not a traditional route, um, you know, through traditional education or anything like that. Wow, congratulations on that. That's very impressive. So have you always been interested in business from that young age then? So as soon as you started studying it, you sort of fell in love with it and then that was where you knew that's the sort of journey you wanted to go down or did you sort of yeah. when you got into the travel industry then did you see yourself being in that forever or did you always sort of know that you were going to end up starting your own business tell us a little about a little bit about how you went from the travel industry to then starting all up by yourself yeah sure so it's kind of interesting isn't it because I did I definitely had an interest in business I actually really enjoyed my economics classes and things like that um, so I enjoyed um, learning about it I just didn't enjoy the application of um, doing the work, I guess, outside. I enjoyed listening to the lessons. I just didn't like to actually apply myself. So it seems it's a bit of a confusing, um, I guess, the thing to say about schooling. Um, but yeah, I was always really interested in business. To be honest, I didn't have that much confidence. So I don't know that I ever thought that was ever a possibility. It felt like a dream. It was one of those things that you sort of daydream about and you think, oh, you know, I can imagine myself running a business or... I'm um, being this manager of this corporate, you know, team of people. But to be honest, I never thought that was a reality. It was just something that I used to dream about. And so when I got into the travel industry, I ended up working actually in corporate travel. Um, what corporate travel means is that we had contracts with lots of different big businesses, essentially. We used to negotiate their airline contracts, their hotel contracts, and organize their business travel. So, you know, helping all these business people travel all around the world. So it sounds very glamorous. Um, most of the time, it's just dealing with kind of pain in the ass people who like to be aware at a certain time and have meetings that overlay and kind of dealing with all the drama of their travel. Um, but, um, yeah, it's sort of how I got into that. I did that for three years in New Zealand and then decided to come abroad. So I went traveling. Uh, so I left my job, went traveling for seven months. And then when I arrived in London... I took a job, again, as a corporate travel agent. So I worked for American Express, um, which is one of the largest, well, it is the largest corporate travel agency in the world. Um, and what I did for them is I was actually self-employed and they used to outsource me to lots of different financial institutions. So I worked with businesses like Lehman Brothers, Morgan Stanley, Citigroup, lots of these financial institutions. I was mostly based in Canary Wharf or around Bank in London. Um, and actually really enjoyed that sort of work. But you will probably remember that around 2007, there was a huge financial crisis. And what that meant at the time was redundancies. So I had my first redundancy in late 2007, was able to quickly land another contract, which only lasted about three months before I was made redundant, managed to get another contract straight after that, and then was made redundant again a couple of months later. So within the space of... 12 months I had three redundancies um, and really you know London or, or I guess the whole of well the world really was going through this this terrible economic time and it was just very very tough no jobs and that was kind of the end of my corporate travel career <laughs> well, that must have been really so, yeah. stressful yeah getting made redundant but, then getting a new contract and thinking right cool I'm back on track losing that one again then getting another one yeah. thinking right there we go yeah. again and then losing it again that must yeah, have yeah. not and I think I was um I was actually speaking to someone about this earlier today I, I remember being at the time I was actually I was quite arrogant really in terms of the type of work that I did 
I, I always had mm. always found it really easy to get jobs up until that point. Um, you know, I would take a job, work really hard at it. I found it relatively easy to sort of get to the top of, you know, being a top salesperson in, in, the, in that travel business. Um, and, you know, then I would feel like going traveling. So I would hand in my resignation, go traveling for four months, come back four months later and say, hello, do, would you like to hire me back? And they would say yes. And I would go back into it. And I'd, I'd had this almost, um, it's totally unrealistic. <laughs> like now, I don't know that that would ever happen. But I sort of had this arrogance that I was, um, I found, I just found it really easy to get work. And so I wasn't very good at managing money. So, you know, I'd, I'd go traveling, come back and get a job. So I was really living paycheck to paycheck. And so when I, when I did have those redundancy, it was scary because by the time the third one had happened and there wasn't another job in the pipeline, um, you know, two months of being unemployed, really in a foreign country with not that, well, I didn't have any family here, very few friends, you know, just friends I'd made through work. Um, scary you know you just start to think oh my god what am I going to do and even just two months being out of work by that point I was like I can't pay my rent so I, I'm going to be on the streets I don't know what was going to happen so yeah pretty pretty challenging time has definitely knocked me down a peg or two in terms of my level of confidence but then also just trying to figure out like what do I want to do with my life it, it gives you I suppose that opportunity to reflect and think is this what I want to be doing forever or am I just doing this because I know it and it's easy? Um, and I guess that was the point where I started to make some of those decisions around how I wanted to shape my future. For sure. So do you now look at it, look back at it as a blessing rather than the fact that you did get knocked down? And But now you can look at it and think, well, if that never happened, you wouldn't be in the position you are today. So you can almost look back at it and think, well, thank God it did actually happen I suppose oh 100% you know of course at the time it's awful and you can't imagine anything worse but you're exactly right because I would never have left it was super comfortable um I earned a good salary I had great commissions on top of that um I got to travel you know it was kind of I felt at the time like I was sort of living the dream and it's kind of weird because it was I think I was about 25 at the time and well yeah I was I just turned 25 and it's kind of funny the way that I, I had thought of leaving the travel industry. I thought, you know, I really enjoy marketing. I, I kind of wanted to get into something more business related. But every time I sort of looked at those job opportunities, I thought, oh, I'll have to take a pay cut. I'm going back to being a, you know, a junior person and these sorts of roles. And I thought, how at the age of 25 could they possibly take that much of a step down? You know, like it felt like such a huge decision. So, yeah, I, I would never have, I, I don't know, but I don't think I would have ever chosen to leave. So in hindsight, it's one of the best things that could have ever happened. Did it almost give you that attitude going into starting your business yourself that you, if this doesn't work, then I don't know what I'm going to do. So it almost gave you that fuel to then make sure whatever you did start succeeded almost. Yeah, I think like, you know, it, it's, because it was such a scary time and I thought I hadn't planned. I, I just sort of, I guess I was just young and I just hadn't really thought about financial planning and how to manage my um, money or, you know, anything like that. As I say, everything had kind of come a little bit easy at that point that it, it definitely makes you realize, well, I, I don't like this lack of control. Um, and I think that was the point for me where I just thought I can't, I have no control over this as to whether I have a job and whether I earn money. 
So that was, for me, the first time where I thought, what could I be doing where I do dictate my own future, where I can actually control what's going to happen next? And that's when you start thinking a little bit entrepreneurially and, you know, what could I be doing to maybe, but for me to be dictating what's going to happen next rather than relying on, you know, some institution or some business to, to provide me that work. For sure. And obviously, this is where Brandective started. And because I love talking to my guests about the roots of their businesses, and where their companies actually all started. Because, as I said, before we started the call on social media nowadays, we're only exposed to the successes, people were too afraid to share those 16 hour work days, those sacrificing of the nights out with their friends, the relationships of sometimes just ruined because they are so focused yeah. on building their own you don't get to see that so i love talking mm. to all of my guests about the very first days of their companies like starting their businesses so tell us yeah. about very very start how long for example how long was it before you got your first client just everything tell us from the ground uh, up how right, you know. right from the get-go Right, so yes. there was a little bit that happened in between us. So I had had these redundancies and essentially was looking for work because I just thought, I don't, how do I do, I don't know how to do anything else. I've done this for, at this point, you know, since I left school, so I was 18, I'd done that for seven years. So it felt kind of scary. I'd never really done anything else. Um, so I actually ended up taking a sales role. Essentially what I'd worked in in travel was sales. So that felt sort of like a, a fairly easy transition. The core difference there was it was face-to-face -face sales and it was commission only. So there was no basic salary. I went out and did, you know, hardcore sales face-to-face, -face, um, you know, selling telecommunication contracts to phone broadband, um, which was really hard going. But I, I loved it because I enjoy meeting people. I like being able to sit with them and understand what is the big challenge or the big problem that they have and how can I solve it. So, you know, I'd be going to these people's homes and, and talking to them about their, how much they're spending on their phone and broadband. And we were in the middle of a recession then, so people were really conscious of it. Um, and I would, you know, listen to these, you know, some of the people we used to meet were spending three or four hundred pounds a month just on a, on a landline phone contract. Like, it was crazy. Um, and so for me to be able to meet with those people and say, hey, actually, we've got this package where let's get 35 pounds a month all in. Um, you know, help, let me help you transfer that. That felt actually quite simple for me because I was helping to solve a problem. So a lot of people look at sales like it's super scary and they hate doing it and they don't like being pushy. But I think this has kind of got a lesson in it with regards to business. But it's like if you can look at any kind of challenge or problem somebody has and you can solve it, then that's a really easy sale, right? Like you don't really have to sell that much. It's really just about building a relationship, building trust. And, and offering the solution. So I, I did that. I did a lot of sales for about probably about six months. Um, I loved the sales company I was working with. You know, it was hard. I was working six days a week. Um, I was working, you know, 12, 13 hour days. I was self-employed, say commission only. Um, and kind of about six months in, I thought, I think I can help this business do more. They don't have an online presence. They were still doing everything really offline. So I kind of suggested to my boss at the time, you know, there's some things that I think we could be doing to help position the business and give it more visibility online, build a better brand, attract not any more talent into the business, but also customers. 
So they were like, okay, let's give this a go. And they actually allowed me to do that. And I, I didn't know how to do it. I just uh, made it up. <laughs> I self-taught, you know, I read a lot of books. I did, I went on some courses. I watched a lot of YouTube tutorials and basically just taught myself how to build a brand. Um, and we did that sort of over about 18 months. It took me to probably from start to finish building a brand for that business, helping them get that visibility across Google search promoting all the positive things that were happening and what they were able to do um, to the point where we started to get noticed by a lot of competitors. And I remember being in the office one day and we had a call from a competitor company who said, hey, we noticed you guys started building a brand online. We don't do that. How do you do it? And, you know, can you help us? And I remember asking them, I, I put them on hold and I, I ran to my boss and I was like, oh my God, this is so weird. I, a competitor just called and said they noticed what we're doing and they want us to help them. And I was kind of like outraged, you know, and my boss at the time was like, we should help them. And I was like, why? Like, why would we help the competitor? And she's like, well, the industry, you know, sales as an industry doesn't have a good reputation. A lot of people don't like us. Um, imagine if we could build the profile of this sort of industry and help give it a really positive image. She was like, do you think you could do it still work full-time but do some freelance work for them and I thought maybe so anyway I set up a meeting long story short I ended up doing some work for them and that happened to me a couple of times over so essentially I was working full-time had a couple of these freelance clients I was doing work for as well and essentially I got to a point where I had about it worked up to about seven freelance clients as well as working my full-time job so really kind of an accidental entrepreneur or business yeah. owner sort of yeah, so it's just kind of like, let's go, you know, um, let, uh, let me try to help you and we'll do this. And so, so I did. And um, yeah, I got to a point, as I say, where there was about seven, about seven freelance clients. And at that point, I sat down with my boss and said, hey, you know, I think actually this could be a business and I kind of need some more time to, to kind of put my energy into it to see if, if I can actually grow it. And she was, at the time, she was actually going on maternity leave and she said, now is a good time for that to happen. So I was really fortunate to get her blessing to be able to do that. She's still a client of mine today, so eight years later. Um, yeah, so very organic for me. You know, it's not like I had a, an idea and I went out and pitched it to begin with. It very much happened organically by people noticing what I was doing. So I was very lucky in that sense. Um, but, you know, once I kind of went into this full time, then obviously I had to start pitching it and, and selling it and I guess as I touched on before with regards to working in sales was for me, it's always been about what is the challenge? What is the problem? You know, these businesses have what these customers have and can I offer a solution, like a genuine solution to solve that problem? Because if I can, then it's an easy sale. I find it super interesting because when you see these people that started businesses and they go, Oh, I didn't go set out with the intention of starting this. I just fell into it. You think, yeah, whatever you fell into it. Like this, I just find it fascinating. You genuinely did obviously just fall into it. You were good at what you did. You were in a full-time job. People noticed that. And rather than leaving your job and working for the competitor, you collaborated and helped everyone. You didn't jump from job to job to job to help them all individually. You sort of, and I guess at the time, did you really see that there was the opportunity there of building a business behind it? Or was it very much, it just suddenly hit you one point and you went, I've actually got a business going here. It's, this is not something I'm just doing on the side. This is a genuine business. 
Well, I think there's a couple. Of, it's hard because there's a couple, there's so many different things at play here. I think, well, firstly, one, I'm so lucky that my boss supported me and encouraged me to do that mm. because there's not many bosses out there, I think, that would. I think a lot of times no. they'd be like, oh, screw the competitor. Like, don't talk to them. Um, and, mm. you know, had she acted that way, maybe things would have worked out differently. Um, so I think that, that played a part of it. I think the second part is, you know, I spent that 18 months kind of building that first brand and, and building them up. And it was during that time where I started to think there's a lot of, I know a lot of other businesses are out there who don't know how to do this or not doing this well. Or to be honest, kind of the businesses or the agencies that they were hiring to have help with it were not performing. Like I was witnessing it because I was watching them, you know, I was like a hawk kind of watching like, how are they doing this? What are they doing? That didn't work. I wonder why this worked for me, but that didn't work for them. Oh, they're doing that thing. That's quite good. I should kind of imitate that and do that over here. You know, so I was really observing and watching what was happening with a lot of these businesses. So I think it was certainly during that 18 months of building that first brand, I was thinking, okay, this could be something else. Um, I don't know at that point whether I had the thought I would leave. Like I always felt like there's loyalty to the business because they've given me so much freedom and so much um, support to be able to help their business do this. So no, it's, a funny, it's a hard thing to know in hindsight um, what what would the outcome would have been had I gone a different route. Um, but yeah, it really was one of those things that happened organically and it's almost I feel like some people find that annoying to hear actually because some people you know have this great idea and they just don't really know how to get it off the ground um so although I haven't made that sound super challenging and, and that it wasn't that hard to begin with like it really wasn't those first sort of seven clients for me weren't that challenging I guess because I wasn't really looking for them right like they just kind of came to me because they saw the work but I think where the challenges happen is when you now don't have the support of a full-time job and I've launched the business and then you start kind of getting into like, you know, having to deal with, I don't know, just managing different clients' expectations. I'm trying to think of some of the early challenges I had with things like um, uh, recruiting my first team member. It's not you know, that kind of thing. That. I actually, yeah, like that part is really tough because when you're a one-man band, like what, do you offer what do you have to offer like okay I can offer a job with an income um, and here's the work that we do but that's not a fun culture like it's just a one person you know work directly for your boss like is that really fun like it you know that kind of stuff was really hard to overcome um, and you know I ended up working with a lot of interns and things like that to begin with to kind of create this bit of a fun environment um, so that was kind of one way I guess that I overcame it um, but I'm trying to think some of the other big challenges that came up in the early days. Probably things like actually knowing how to cost things. That was a big challenge for me. I didn't really, um, because I'd come from a self-employed perspective where I'm thinking, okay, this is how much money I need to earn. This is how much time I need to put into achieving this result. Therefore, this is how much I'll charge to the client. And then, but not necessarily thinking, forward thinking, oh, tax, you know, um, when things don't go to plan, having to spend money on another piece of software. Uh, when I do have to recruit someone that we have to, we then have to pay an income, you know, like there's a lot of things like that, that I guess because I hadn't come at it with a business plan as to this is what I'm going to do with the business. I didn't really think about those things, but they presented challenges for me, you know, at year one, two. 
So, so how long was it before you did hire your first client? Because I, I listen to a lot of podcasts and they always suggest when you're launching a business, you find a co-founder to obviously make sure that you, the loneliness isn't there and you've obviously got someone there pushing you along with you on your journey. But you were a solopreneur at the end of the day. You did it all by yourself. So how long was it before you then decided to actually hire your first employee? And mm. did then... Oh, oh, and, was it a cost as such or was it almost it just allowed you to do so much more like or was it even yeah. difficult was it difficult to actually let go let's say was it difficult to let go of certain processes in order to then scale up yeah all of that <laughs> um <laughs> so the first first person i hired so after i officially left my job it was just me um, from that point to the first person I hired, I think it was about six months. Um, so I guess I had six months of just on my own. One thing that I actually really struggled with, which you've just reminded me of, is is that loneliness. Um, I was attempting to work from home and I hated it. I just did not enjoy that at all. Um, found it really difficult to be motivated. Just missed talking to people. You know, like I was living in a flat chair yeah. at the time and my flatmate would come home and I'd be like boo, boo, so like all over her the second she walked in the door because I was like I just need to talk to someone it's so difficult um so that I didn't last very long at home I actually ended up getting some office space um so I guess now you'd call it co-working but at the time um I just had a couple of clients that had some space in the offices and were like would you like to rent a desk um and so I did that and that sh- that issue was amazing because it just meant I was around people which really helps to keep morale. Um, so that, you know, that was a big challenge. But yeah, it was about six months from the time I bought in the first person. I think the biggest challenge around recruiting and bringing in your first member of the team is, for me, it wasn't so much giving up control of the work, but it was like having to sacrifice the money. I think that was the bit where you're like, oh, really? <laughs> like, I've gotten used to kind of earning, you know, I think by the time I hired the first person I had, 18 clients which was a lot for me to be able to deliver on my own it was way too much um but you get used to the income you know and that's a hard decision to make to say oh to share it with someone (laughs) you know that was tough but you know you quickly realize that with support and assistance and having a member on the team that you can grow other areas and you can actually you can charge more because there's more people there's more talents there's more um yeah expertise to be able to share around no definitely so 18 clients before solely by yourself how did you balance your time clients because that's a hell of a lot of people to look after did you have to like prioritize between obviously the highest value client and the lowest or did you try and balance it all equally how on earth did you manage because yeah i would i would not be able to i know it's a lot right I know. It's, it's actually, um, what it was, was I think a few things. I had really, really good relationships with clients. Um, they knew that I was a solopreneur. Um, they were excited to work with me and help me grow my business. So that was kind of exciting for them too, because they felt like they were giving me an opportunity. And I guess that comes down to my transparency. So a lot of times when I was bringing them on board, I'd say, listen, this is, who I am, this is my background, this is what I've been able to do for clients. So I'd be able to show them the examples of the great stuff that I've been able to do. And therefore they were excited and they wanted to work with me. And then I would just have that honest conversation to say, you know, 
I actually am on my own right now. I think actually at the time I did have a couple of copywriters that I was outsourcing some content to. Yeah. So, um, and those are people that I just found online. Um, now I would do something like Upwork, but at the time it was just like forums and things that you would advertise things on and get people to apply. So they, would, they were supporting you a little bit with some articles um, on the content side of things. But in terms of the web development I was still doing on my own, um, all the social content I was doing on my own, the PR sort of stuff I was doing on my own. So it was a lot. Like, it, you know, it was one of those things. But the way that I used to balance my day was I used to spend the first half of my day doing all of the mandatory work that I had to do every month. So in my line of work, it's things like I've committed to producing a certain number of blog posts and a certain number of social media posts. So my mornings were just like hitting quota. Like it was like, let's make sure that I just, get the number you know I had a very tight schedule each day of the week which client I was writing for and which client I was doing social media for and planning that in advance the next sort of 30 days for them my afternoons were spent doing all the reactive stuff so it was like you know I had to do a client call or a client had asked for something specific or I needed to fix you know something or make amendments or something that all happened in my afternoon and I had to be very regimented um, and not even allow any of that busyness and that sort of reactive work to leak into my mornings. My mornings just had to be proper production, <laughs> you know, producing, planning, scheduling, um, and so that the afternoons could be a little bit messier. Because the thing is, if you allow clients to disrupt you all day long, you actually don't ever get anything done. No. Agreed. And something that I do want to ask then is, do you think you were being able to service your clients to the best of your ability on your own, even though you had this structure that worked for you? Did you, did you know yourself that you genuinely needed to hire someone else for the sake of, because your client, at the end of the day, your clients are paying you for a service. And Personally. did they know you had 17 other clients when you're on your own sort of oh, thing? Did yeah. you sort of know that you needed no. to hire someone else to, to service your clients yeah. to the best you possibly could? I think the most important thing with that is clients have to feel like they're the most important client you have. So they definitely didn't know that there were 17 others. Yeah. <laughs> like, you um, made sure of it's just, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, there's a bit of like, you've got to use it to your advantage a little bit in the sense that, that, you know, I do have other priorities, like make them kind of want it, but not to the point where they feel like they're not getting the service they're paying for. I think there's kind of two things. One is um, the relationships and making sure that you have an outstanding relationship, that you're very transparent and um, uh, you're setting expectations clearly in terms of when things are going to be delivered, what's going to be created, how you're going to manage um, situations that arise so I think being super clear with them on that helps and the second part to it I think is that I had really clear packages so you know they would buy this package this package included xyz if they were requesting anything that went outside that scope I was re-quoting them and putting it on a timeline where it's going to be you know you're going to get this in two weeks or whatever it would be so I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is the expectations were super clear in terms of what, what I was doing and when I was doing it and when it would be delivered by. And it came down to trust, you know, having those really good relationships. Um, because yeah. as soon as you don't, everything falls apart, you know? 
Exactly. And at the end of the day, that relationship and trust and delivering on what you say you're going to do, that's at the end of the day, what's going to lead to the customer attention. If you don't deliver on what you've promised and you don't build that relationship, they're just going to go somewhere else. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, 100%. And I think the difference is like just to deliver, like I think that's the key thing for me as well as, okay, sometimes I will overstretch myself and even now it still happens you know with a team of 12 like we still I still overstretch us a bit but it's I also know in myself like I will never ever allow service not to be delivered to a client so if, if that for me means that I need to work a 16 hour day then that is what that means for me like that's the sacrifice I make for over committing um, and I'm just not someone that will let people down so I'm either going to say we don't have capacity to be able to do this for you right now. So if we're not the right fit, no problems, go find someone else. Or, hey, mm. I know, you know, we love working with you. I know that you enjoy working with us. You know, we, we are pushed to our limit right now. If you're able to wait three weeks on this project, I can certainly help you. But at the moment, it's not possible. You know, it's just about, it's, it's just communicating and making sure that if I say I'm going to do something, then I do it. Exactly. And the fact that you're given those timescales and saying that it may take three weeks, because you've got that reputation, it's likely that the, cu- the customer's actually going to still be okay with it because they just genuinely want your service because they know how good you are. They're not going to go somewhere else just because you said, oh, it might take a little bit longer than what I've previously mentioned. So, yeah, as yeah say, I think the worst thing you can do, I think it's the worst thing anyone can do is like, is over-promising and not delivering like it's just such an issue and particularly in in the industry that I'm in and digital marketing and and web it's unfortunately it happens a lot so you know a big complaint that I think a lot of businesses have when they come to us is like hey I've worked with this other agency they used to say this but it would take them nine weeks to actually do it or hey you know this web agency started building this website for us four weeks into the job they disappeared and they went out to the calls and weren't response to my messages like that happens I can't even tell you how most people that we build websites for have had a really awful experience with another agency so you know unfortunately the industry that I'm in doesn't have a fantastic reputation for that so but even just by us saying like this is what we do this is how we do it this is the timeline take it or leave it and actually once that relationship is built and that trust is there they believe us and that almost they would rather wait most of the time you know 99% of the time they'll say yep we'll wait two months just if, as long as you can do it like we're there so I'm like great cool it's almost better to under promise and over deliver than to over promise and under deliver because at oh, the end of the day if you're going to over you're going to over deliver then you're exceeding client expectations they're going to definitely come back because you've said you're going to do something and you've exceeded what their expectations so it's a no-brainer and as you say i don't understand why people over promise in rfps just in order to get the client in the first place because as soon as they actually get this client and they aren't able to deliver they're just going to lose them and it's as, and everyone obviously cheaper to retain a client than it is to get a new one so if you're constantly losing clients and having to get new ones you're just going to end up churning through way more money than if it was to just be that you delivered on your promise and you retained every single client you kept yeah a hundred percent and i don't really i mean i i don't understand why people would say they're able to do something if they're not like to me that's just it doesn't feel authentic or genuine um but i, no, I but i can also see kind of how it happens like i think it's like 
a fair or, a, or maybe even agreed sometimes where it's like they're worried that if they don't say yes, that the client's going to mm. not choose to work with them or something. Um, but the worst thing that you can do, and people have so much more respect if you can just say, hey, we're at capacity. I cannot take this on right now. Um, you know, I would love to work with you if you can wait six weeks. If, if not, I totally understand. A lot of the times those clients will either say, hey, listen, I'm so sorry, I can't wait. Uh, but thank you for being yeah. honest. Or they'll just say, yeah, if you can do it in six weeks, no problems, we can make that work. And and you just have such, the level of respect that you have for each other at that point is so great that it just, it's just a nice way to work, you know? Because, you know, like before when you were saying, like, how, why do people do that in terms of overpromise and under-deliver? Like, it mustn't feel good. Like, it must feel awful, no. you know, to, to not feel like you delivered on what you said you were going to do it just doesn't I can't imagine that that must feel horrible I just I don't get it exactly and I don't mean to jump ship here but I did want to touch on another topic that I know you're very interested in and that is property property investment because I know that you've yeah is that something you've got interest in because you wanted to, to diversify your income streams or is this something you're looking to just progress on into the future to build that portfolio and have all that passive income yeah, so um, I started to get interested in property probably about three or four years ago, and then I started investing about three years ago, um, mostly because I thought, yeah, I needed to diversify, and again, I guess this kind of comes back to my like uh, concerns around you know income and making sure that I can support myself, and you know after the, all those redundancies I think I had sort of ten years ago, it's like it's always thinking how can I protect myself how can I create something that has a little bit more longevity to it um so yeah started to get into that and bought a couple of properties which have worked really well in terms of generating income um which has been good and then what sort of happened off the back of that as well is that I started attending a lot of these investor meetings and developer meeting developers etc etc and what do you know they need help with their marketing so um, we now awesome. do a lot of marketing for, yeah, for those in the property sector too. So um, actually, the, I wrote a book earlier this year that was published in March. It's called Get Online, The Six Steps to Building a Digital Marketing Pipeline for the Non-Tech Savvy. And that very much revolves around the property industry. And a lot of the examples I use in there are sort of from the property sector just because those are a lot of the people that I'm talking to right now and the sorts of clients that we're starting to work with. So, um, yeah, it's kind of interesting how... Yeah, you start to look at a different option, but actually, again, it's just, you know, people start, people, everybody needs uh, some kind of marketing in, the, in their businesses. So, um, and I think that sort of knowledge that I have now of investing in the property sector has led to sort of helping me to build my client base in that area as well. Again, that's really interesting because you've obviously tried to dabble in that for your self like fulfillment and your to increase your income and then by doing so you ended up finding even more people for your business so it's putting yourself out there it's just gonna it's all gonna come back it's come back to you tenfold even though you just wanted to look into property investment as something that was going to benefit your income then you went into it and thought oh hang on these people need marketing as well it sort of came back to you and you thought yeah, and I thought, you know, I think a lot of times people are like, oh, God, you're talk- you're such a sales person, you're like talking about this all the time. And I'm like, well, I am, but it's because you have to. Like, I think for any startup business or any small business that wants to grow their client base, you know, whether it's 
whether you're using digital to grow your presence and build your brand and help people understand what you're doing, or you're attending networking events and meeting people outside the business, or you know, even just doing this with friends, like communicating what it is that you're doing is all of that is a business opportunity. And I know, you know, I've got friends that feel that run businesses that feel a little bit awkward about that sometimes, where they feel like, oh, I don't want to be like teaching everybody I know. And for me, it's not about that at all. It's not like I sit there around a dinner party and go, oh, does anybody need me marketing? Because this is what I do. But it's just natural conversation. I think it's one of those things where people are curious. Oh, what is it that you do? Oh, I have this business. Oh, these are our challenges. And then if you can just give away advice or help or point them in the right direction, because um, I think that's a big that's a big part of our approach actually. And if you've kind of got listeners actually on this podcast who are thinking like, how do I get customers? And you know, how do I market? And these are some of the big challenges of starting a business. It, it's just about finding solutions for people and being helpful. So I'm a massive advocate of giving away stuff for free. So I, you know, if someone needs support on something or doesn't know how to do something digital related, if I can give them a resource where they can, okay, let's say they're not in a position to better hire an agency, so then they can't afford to hire us, for example. I'm not just going to be like, well, I'm not going to support you or help you or even tell you anything. I'd much rather point them towards, hey, here's some resources you could use to actually do this yourself. Um, or talk to this person because I met them at this event and they're great. Or, you know, here's a copy of my book or here's some videos that we created and posted. Or, you know, here's my podcast. And, you know, on my podcast, yeah. I interview a bunch of business owners and here's the marketing techniques that they use. I'd rather just give, I give, you know, all of that stuff as free content because it's, you know, it, the more that you put out there and the more that you try to help and support other people, it kind of, it just comes back to you. And, it took me such a long time to learn that lesson where, you know, in my first probably three or four years in business, I just used to try to protect everything I was doing. Like, oh, I can't tell people how I do this because they might steal my ideas. Or, oh, imagine if I told people this is the way we do this process. My competitors will probably steal that. Like, and I just used to try to protect it all. And actually, that doesn't help you grow. Like, the, the thing that's helped us grow the most is by telling everyone, I'm just like, this is what we do. This is how we do it. This is the methodology. Here's a test that we ran on this, and this didn't work. Or here's a test we ran on this, and it did work. And actually, sharing all of that results in way more business than me trying to, like, hustle and protect all of our IP and not communicate how we do what we do. Like, just give the way. And it's funny you say that as well, because it, by not sharing, that's literally the complete opposite of how your business actually started. It was like your manager gave you the opportunity to help competitors. And then, so it, as you say, though, it takes that click in your brain to then realize that by giving out this free value, it's going to come back to you full circle. For example, you said that these people that you gave the free value to because they can't afford your service, if it then this free value does help them to build their business and build their income when they can afford you, it's likely that they're going to come back for your service anyway, because you helped them in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. That's the way that I look at it. Like, okay, if if they can't become a client today, we'll let them come back in three years once they've built their business. Or, you know, if I'm helpful to them and I give them some free resources and access to things that will help them, how much more likely are they to tell other people? Like, They've got probably friends and whatever who are starting businesses as well. So they're like, oh, I met this girl. She was really helpful. She owns this agency and this is what she does. And it's just everything about it. It's just like having a sort of like giving culture, I think, is really, really important. 
but it's you know it's one of those things that's really I meet I still meet so many people who are nervous about doing that they're so concerned with competition and um you know people taking advantage of them and all this kind of stuff that they're, they're protective of it and it's just the only piece of advice I can give people is don't worry about it. Just put it out there. Because the more you explain what you do, how you do it, it actually helps people to make a purchase decision. So for us, we use a six-step methodology to build a digital marketing pipeline. I actively speak about that. I wrote about it in the book. I, you know, I'm speaking at all these different events. I talk about it on the podcast. I write blogs about it. I do video content and teach people how to do these six steps. So then what happens is when clients are considering, oh, we've got these three different marketing agencies that we're tendering to see you know, who we want to hire, they see all of this about us. They know our approach. What I'm talking about makes sense. I've given some examples away of case studies and things that have happened. It just helps that sales process for us. But that just becomes way easier for them because they're like, we've got this one agency over here who won't really tell us. We've got this one in the middle who's told us a little bit but not that much. And then we have Brand Lective over here that's like spilt the beans on everything. So we totally get them. So it just, you know, to me, it's just like now that that I do that and I've done that for the last four years, it's just a no-brainer. Like I'm like, how did I spend the first four years in business not giving stuff away? (laughs) Like it seems crazy. And as I think that's the biggest takeaway anyone could take from this episode. It's collaborate, don't compete. There's enough out there for everyone and there's no harm in being helpful. Just collaborate. Okay. Stacey, you've dropped yeah. some incredible value throughout this episode, but there is a way I do like to end every single show and that's by asking my guests three questions on three topics that I don't think are spoken about enough and these are money, relationships and death so they are very quick fire not i don't want 10 minute answers for each question i just want quick (laughs) straight to the point two minutes two minutes each answer and just straight to it so the first question with relation to money i personally don't think it directly relates to money but a few people do so and the question is what does the word success mean to you yeah, it doesn't necessarily relate. No, actually, it doesn't relate to money at all for me, I don't think. I think success is happiness. It is how do I measure, what, what makes me happy in life? Um, maybe choosing the top three things and achieving them. And I think very rarely they're related to money. For sure. And I've had a few people that obviously say success can correlate to money because people do th- consider how successful you are by how much money you have but then you actually ask these successful people and this is why i ask them all is they then go no literally despite me having money i don't relate it at all to success it is literally as you say happiness is the number one factor that people tend to say so again thank you for saying that one no worries So the next question is with regards to relationships. So throughout your journey so far, have you found it difficult to maintain relationships, whether that be with friends, family, loved ones, or a significant other, or have you found a way for those people to enjoy your journey with you? Um, Both. So I think I met my boyfriend the week I launched my business. (laughs) I've been with him eight years, eight and a half years. So, um, yeah, that obviously I've maintained really well. Um, I've definitely lost a lot of friends throughout my business journey, which has been really sad. 
And I think that honestly just comes down to, uh, well, lack of time, but also change in mindset. So I think my ambitions and my goals have changed and the way that I look at things has changed through growing a business. And through that, I have actually lost a lot of friendships, which is a little bit sad. But on the flip side to that, I've also built a lot of amazing friendships through business networking groups and, and built some really solid relationships there. So, um, yeah, I guess the answer is both. So with those friends, just quickly delving a bit deeper into this one, with those friends that you say you yeah. lost, were they necessarily a bad friendship to lose or was it almost to your game that they sort of stepped away did they not have the same vision as you and they were sort of bringing you back did actually losing them was it that much of a detriment to your journey well I think in terms of my business journey no but you know it's always sad to lose friendships that you've had um no matter sort of you know how old they are I think um in hindsight looking at things now they when I see this happen with a lot of business owners, and this happened to me, which is you become very tunnel vision in terms of what you want to achieve, and you've got these very set goals, and you start to listen to all of these entrepreneurs, and you get completely, you know, obsessed with um, personal development and self development. And then sometimes, if the people around you don't have that same outlook, you find it really challenging to relate to them. So I think that's what mm. happened to me. It was like I had these great ambitions and things that I wanted to achieve and my friends didn't. They just were like, what are you talking about? Like you don't want to come out on a Saturday night. Like you used to always do this. And now you don't want to do this. And I just, I didn't care about the same things anymore. So, and that was on me. That wasn't on them. They didn't, they didn't change. Mm. It was just that I changed through my growth and development. Um, I think, you know, eight years into running a business, looking back at it now, I think it's a bit of a shame that I allowed them to lapse. Because a part of that was my fault too, where it was like, I wanted them to think more like me, but who am I to say that they should be more ambitious or they should want greater things? Everybody has, you asked a question about success before, everybody's version of success is totally different. And I think having respect for everybody's version of success is equally as important in a friendship. So I think, you know, there's probably two sides to that story. (laughs) Um, No, I agree. And yeah, of course it does. And this is why I ask these questions. It's also not only for the listeners, it's also for my own self-development because obviously people all have, as you say, everyone's answers are different. People are going to look at these from all different perspectives. And the fact I get to listen to every single person's perspective, it's only going to help me grow as a person also. So this is it's almost a selfish fit end to the episode for me, but I just think all the answers that I get are extremely, extremely interesting. The way I do finish my episodes, though, is with a very morbid question. And I don't mean it okay. to be morbid, but probably <laughs> the most interesting one I ask out of them all. And that is, are you afraid of dying? Um, God, oh, thank you. Am I afraid of dying? Um, I think I am in the sense that in terms of missing out on things, in terms of missing out, yeah. you know, achieving some things I want to achieve or spending time with people that I love or experiencing things that I want to experience. So I think from that perspective, yes. Um, I think there's a flip side or different answers to that, which is as long as you're living every single day or I'm living every single day of my life doing things that I feel are important and I'm putting my energy into the right thing, like whether it's not just always business, like it is some of the other things that I really care about, then there shouldn't be that fear. But 
yeah, the honest answer is yes, I am. And I, yeah, I agree. And I think I've, I've never personally had someone answer that question. So when I ask me that question, so when I, when I do get someone to do an episode with me and they are going to get them to ask me the same questions, I need to come up with a practical answer to go along. <laughs> so I have no idea at the moment. But that rounds up all the questions I have for today. And honestly, thank you so much for answering every single one. Honestly, you've been an incredible guest and dropped some amazing value. So now is your time to plug everything you want to plug. Take it away. Where can my listeners find you on socials, oh. catch up with you, your book, your brand? Go. Say it all. Everything. Oh, thank you so much. Um, well, the agency website is brandlective.com. That's B-R-A-N-D-L-E-C-T-I-V-E.com. Uh, and feel free to connect with me, Stacey Keogh, across LinkedIn, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, you can grab a copy of my book, get online from Amazon, or download my podcast, which is called The Vault with Stacey Keogh, where all good podcasts are found. Um, and thank you so much, Ethan. Go. It's been such a good chat. I've really loved your questions. It's been really good. You've put, you've put some pressure on me to kind of think about things, which I love. <laughs> I think it's fantastic. So thank you so much for having me. No, it's my pleasure. And I must say that all of those links will be in the show notes below so people don't have to worry about remembering all of those. Just yeah. simply <laughs> click below. Once again, Stacey, thank you for joining me on this episode. And I hope all of you listeners enjoyed this episode of CEO Journals. So that's going to wrap up today's episode of the podcast and I can't thank you all enough for listening. I aim to interview some of the most incredible business owners and entrepreneurs every single week. So you can really help me out by smashing that subscribe button and by leaving me a five-star review over in the iTunes store. It literally takes two seconds and will help me secure some of the greatest names in business as guests on the show. Make sure you tune into the next episode where I'm going to be talking to another incredibly interesting guest. I'll be discussing their journey and providing tips to all your aspiring and current business owners. Have a lovely rest of your day. And once again, thank you for tuning in to CEO Journals.